Well, hello, everybody. We are back to debrief the last LCME Secretariat call, which was the Mythbusters. And we've got some busting to do ourselves. So again, so just to briefly uh, reintroduce ourselves. So I'm Jenny Kristner. Um, I serve as the senior dean of a school somewhere in Texas. And then I also uh, run Kristner Strategies. And joining me today, just like last time, is I've got Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa Fallon. I um, am the previous director of accreditation and compliance at a school somewhere in upstate New York. <laughs> and I now work at Christner Strategies. Yay! And then our awesome colleague, Colleen. Hi, everybody. Colleen Hayden. I am the director of accreditation. Um, well, at compliance, quality, and accreditation. I think that's the correct um, trail of my title. Um, and I'm at a school in New York City. So there I'll keep it vague. Yay. All right. All right. Let's dive in. So we're going to review kind of, we're each picking like a myth that kind of just got to us. And so Lisa, you start us off. Yeah. Um, mine was, I was thinking, the question was the major standing committees of the medical school listed in element 1.3 must be defined in the college bylaws. So um, I just wanted to talk to you guys and uh, get your take on this. Uh, they said that they didn't need to be in the bylaws necessarily, but they needed to be in a formally approved document. But I feel like the bylaws need to say who gives the authority to create these committees, right? So mm -hmm. essentially, they kind of do have to be in the bylaws. Now, um, I feel like uh, a good process, if you don't want to put like, the membership and the quorum and the voting guidelines and all the details of the committee, you can have a an associated policy. So the bylaws would say, we have these five standing committees and we know that we need an admissions committee, the curriculum committee, the faculty appointments and promotion, the students appointment and promotion. Like those were the four I think that um, they outlined in the meeting. Um, the webinar, but, um, and then you have this policy that kind of dictates the details because mm -hmm. we all know it's hard to change bylaws. So if you say these committees are um, approved through our bylaws, and then we have the associated policy, see the associated policy for the details, then if you want to change the membership or, mm -hmm. you know, something of particulars in that you can, you just need to change the policy. So I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. So I definitely say that's been my experience. Um, and my previous institution, that was our easiest way to update, um, like kind of procedural pieces of a committee. And one of the examples was several years ago, listening to a webinar and I'm talking about needing to define quorum for all of your different committees. So it was easier for us to go in and update the policy that was associated with like the bylaws um, um, enumeration of saying like, you know, these, these are the standing committees of the faculty. Um, so that was a lot easier. Um, but I can't imagine not actually having them written down somewhere. So again, whether it's policy or bylaws, um, they have to be somewhere that's very clear who's in, you know, who, what, what the charge is and what their responsibility is. Yep. So yeah. I guess here's the thing. One other thing yep. with that table in 1.3, some people list a lot of committees. Do we really need to list those committees or are we only listing the ones that are outlined in the bylaws? and the pot and have the associated policy 
So Iowa, we listed a lot of committees. Uh, we didn't list every single solitary committee that there is, but we did list a lot of the, like we listed like the IRB committee and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but but what our bylaws does is very much the similar. The bylaws does give the authority to the bylaws. So the bylaws are for the university. We don't have school bylaws because we're a health sciences university. So the bylaws mm -hmm. are for the university. And it's very clear in the bylaws that it gives each school the authority to establish their own committees and then references a policy that further has all the stuff you just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so that's what ours does. And then, so then we have a policy specifically in the School of Medicine that has the charge of the basically the big three admissions curriculum and promotion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the charge of the faculty you know, promotions and all that, but those are all separate policies and the bylaws clearly, because those are institutional committees mm -hmm. And the bylaws also give authority to institutional committees. So that's how we do it too. But we did list a lot of committees. Yeah. Well, and I think it's probably confusing to folks too, because you're also trying to show in that, if I'm remembering correctly, and I don't have it up in front of me, you're trying to show how your faculty participate in the medical yes. school. Yeah. So like, yeah, you have to address the pieces that are pertinent to the MD program, like the student stuff. But then obviously you still want to articulate that they have all of these other opportunities to be participatory exactly. in the med exactly. school. Yeah, right. I, I think that's a good point. It does kind of cover two bases with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just want to, it just makes it seem like you want to make sure that if you have an IRB committee, you have a policy that outlines the guidelines, the quorum, how faculty get on those committees. And um, so, and that may not be in the bylaws. Yeah. I, I agree. Although I'll be honest, I don't think that they will care about if the IRB has a quorum. You know what I mean? Like I don't think they'll go digging for that like they will dig for the the other the the big three, right? Right. Yeah. Because they're gonna look for also conflicts of interest and recusal yeah. language and all the fun stuff that they also look for in those big three. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's go. Colleen, did you have a favorite Mythbuster? Yes, because it comes up all the time. So my favorite myth buster is around what are the benchmarks and cutoffs uh, for the data, ISA data, GQ data. Um, are we supposed to, you know, compare ourselves to the national means? I thought it was a bit humorous that when the secretariats were talking about it, they said, well, the GQ doesn't give you a national mean, but it does. It gives us, you know, what the 10,000 students who have participated or whatever the N is, um, in the GQ, it gives us that figure in which we are, you know, as schools, almost always comparing ourselves nationally. Um, I know in my school, I have really tried to transition us away from that, especially given the secretariat's discussion of we shouldn't be doing it. They said that a few webinars ago. Um, you know, if you're you're if you're within three points of say the national mean for student satisfaction with awareness of concerns from your, you know, dean of student affairs and the national mean is a 70 and you're a 73%, that probably still isn't in an acceptable benchmark, even though the LCME will not tell us what that cutoff is of kind of that, that aggregate of very satisfied, satisfied. Um, and, you know, and then the other piece that ties into that is how do we account for all the NAs in certain areas of the ISA? Um, and that is definitely a sticking point. And that comes up a lot from schools. That question comes up of like, how do you actually analyze that data? Uh, so it's it's always frustrating to have these myths debunked by the secretariats, but not give us any more clear guidelines. So I'm not sure what you both have done do do um, in relation to kind of cutoff marks, best practices for schools. 
how you deal with NAs? So, so I'll say, um, so we do still look at how well we compare to national mean, of course, but I totally agree with you. If national mean is like 70%, like we know that's not, that could be a problem. And so mm -hmm. we we have um, our accreditation, our assessment person kind of grades the, the responses like red, yellow, green. And I'm forgetting like what their cutoff is, but I'm thinking, I actually think he puts red for anything that's below like 85%, you know, uh, something like that. And so, so we mm -hmm. still are. We still are looking aggressively at it, even if national mean would you're above a national mean, but it's sure. No, we're the same thing for us. Yeah. yeah. I think also what we do is our annual report also includes data from the previous years. So you can track to see if it's continuously below the national mean. Then we know that's definitely a problem area, but it, sometimes if it dips below and goes up and down, not as concerned as much, but um, yeah, we definitely look longitudinally at the data. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who participate on like the APQI listserv that I'm sure folks who are listening to this may actually be involved, there's constantly a back and forth of what are folks using as these cutoffs. So um you know, I think we'll continue to have these conversations just to get a feel for how people are keeping up with it, what their cutoffs are. And it does seem like a lot of schools are starting to do kind of an, an ISA light, we'll call it, at the end of each academic year for each yes. class, not having the students run it, but having administration ask those questions because it does, it does definitely feel like that trend data piece, Lisa, that we need to be on top of that much more than just waiting for the GQ. Great. Um, Totally agree. And then I'll I'll talk, I'll bring up the NAs that you brought up just super briefly, because the NAs are like, we could spiral with NAs, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like crazy. But I think so what we try to do, do with the NAs, so obviously you have to report them. But so we had the, we had this one example of financial aid, we actually had a huge NA number, but it's actually because at the time, we were very fortunate that very, very only a third of our class actually got financial aid. So we were very careful to just provide mm -hmm. that explanation, right? The reason why there are NAs is if you look at, you know, 12 point blah, blah, 12.1, whatever, you will you will see that only 34% of our students use financial aid. So I think mm -hmm. really, if you have a good reason why you have, uh, you have a lot of NAs, I really think it, it behooves you to explain that to them um, or have your students explain it if it's, you know, uh, and the ISA, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. good point. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. All right. So that's that one. All right. So I will bring up the one about that the, um, to remember that the LCME committee can make different recommendations than your survey team can. So I think everybody knows that because you'll have gotten the letter, you know, from the survey team that kind of gives the citations and then you're like, okay, and you're already starting to scurry to like kind of fix or whatever that initial um, report is, and then your LCME comes in and blah, you know, there's more or less or changed out and it can be somewhat frustrating. So, um, and I think it is really frustrating and I'll, I'll speak at a couple. So I served on the LCME committee and everybody, I think everybody knows, but you have to remember that um, the LCME committee does not see your primary documents. They do not see the data collection instrument. They do not see your supporting documents. So all they see is that survey team report, which is why it really you really do need to go through that with a fine tooth comb. And even though you can only respond if there's a factual error, I mean, I'd be looking for factual errors and I would be, if there's something that's represented in a not quite right way, I would point it out. So when we responded, we certainly did, I, I wrote the word factual error, like, you know, a million times, but some of them were really like, you know, your tone was like, 
implying something that is not the case here, people. And and so we we tried to we we went all out, and they actually took a lot of the suggestions, so that was really helpful. Um, but I think it's it just gets to some of that inconsistency, um, and it's the fact that it does depend on the survey team and how they write things up that can sway or not sway that then the LCME committee. Um, if somebody from your survey visit is actually on the committee, they are not allowed to speak. That's that's mm. a good thing. And that is so that because there could be other schools where nobody in the room was on the committee. So they don't want anybody to have an unfair disadvantage or advantage, depending on mm -hmm. how you look at it. Um, and, and sometimes that I remember the committee would be like, you know, we should not, um, we should listen to the survey team because they were there. We weren't there. We don't know everything. And sometimes that worked and sometimes that didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it is a, um, it's definitely a frustrating um, piece of the puzzle. I think the important yeah. thing is in that, in knowing that they don't receive the full DCI, that you really need to make sure that your responses are um, written in a way that they can cut and paste and reveal what you really want to say in that survey team report. Because essentially they're not re rewriting it. They're doing a lot of cutting and pasting. So, but when I heard they didn't get the DCI, I was like, oh my God, all that work we put into it. Yeah. But to your yeah. point, Lisa, they are cutting and pasting a lot. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I think it even probably filters back to, I mean, they haven't updated the paper, but that one, I think it was like in 2015, that Dan Hunt and team, um, you know, the, the kind of like top 10 reasons you get an adverse reaction or adverse decision from the LCME. I think the number one, one was like a poorly written DCI. <laughs> that was either one or two. Yeah. Um, and having come from a school who went on warning status after, um, after a full site visit and I was not involved, I was, I was appointed involved afterwards to help kind of clean things up. Um, it was a rather poorly written DCI. There was a lot of grammatical mistakes, like just mm -hmm. things that did not, I think, um, put us in a good light to start with. Um, so when you hear schools hiring editors to make sure people have like a single voice and just make sure it reads well, like telling a story and reads well, it's really, um, um, fully answers the questions that are being asked. Um, I think it's just so important. And I, I don't think anyone can state that enough. Yep, absolutely. So, all right. Any last words on those, on those, our three favorite myth busters? All right. No, we'll be at the double AMC next month. Yes, yes, yes. So we're, we're going to do, we're going to do something live from the double AMC. So maybe we'll like go out on the street and just pull people in and ask questions <laughs> about what do you think about the LCME? No, I don't know what we're going to do. We haven't quite decided yet, but we will, the three of us will be coming live. I love it. AMC, so it'll be super perfect. Fun. So yes. All right. Great. Well, until next time, everybody um, have a great rest of your day and thanks for watching. Thank yeah. you. Bye. Bye.